So darkness, all right, last week we started with adultery. This week we'll start with darkness. Darkness is one of those things that even as an adult, that was a joke. You guys could have laughed. Right? It, was, it was a joke, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's funny, right? I mean, darkness and adultery aren't funny, but my joke was funny. Um, all that to say, okay. Uh, darkness is one of those things that even as an adult, it causes us to feel unsettled. There's the literal darkness that we experience as the sun goes down. Most of us at this point have figured out how to handle that. Although if we find ourselves somewhere unfamiliar while the sun is going down, that childlike fear probably starts to resurface a little bit. Then there's the darkness we experience when we realize that something has been going on behind our back that we were unaware of. That sort of darkness is frustrating and it can be painful Right, unless it's somebody planning a surprise party for us. There's also the darkness we experience when we're in a state of confusion, when everything that we were able to rely on suddenly stops being reliable. I think we all felt that way in March of 2020 when the world started shutting down all around us. We were confused. We didn't understand what was going on. Finally, there's the darkness that every single one of us keeps hidden away inside the sin that we're clinging to, or maybe it's the sin that we're trying to wrestle with on our own. It's the stuff of the flesh, the old man who rears its head, that stuff that bubbles over when our guard is down, accusing us, condemning us, deceiving us into thinking and believing that we're no better today than we were yesterday, a year ago, or even 20 to 30 years ago. In other words, darkness represents fear, chaos, confusion, and ultimately sin. And for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, it is the absolute worst. Like, it's super frustrating. It's one of those things that, that we're constantly reminded of our weakness every time we, we trip or stumble into sin or into an old behavior. We're just kind of like, all right, God, like still, still I'm going through this? Now for the world... Those whose works are evil, they love the darkness. Why? Because it hides who they truly are. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying this so that we can point our finger at the world in judgment. I think far too often that's that's precisely what we do as followers of Jesus. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the darkness out there, right? Those people, them, they got to figure it out. That's not the point. Often the darkness that is embraced by the world is not as simple as we'd like it to be. Sometimes people run to the darkness to hide because maybe they've been sinned against. They run to cover their shame. And so what we see happening is that people run and hide into the darkness because they're trying to escape some other darkness. And it becomes this horrible cycle. Now most of us would like to believe that this only happens out there, but we do the same thing. Only for us, there's something about it that feels different, maybe even worse. And the reason it might feel worse is because we know what the darkness is and we know where it leads. Now, to talk about this, we need to zoom all the way out. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, the first page of your Bible. It says this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form 
and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now check this out. The first thing we see God do in the scriptures is create the heavens and the earth, which is described as being without form and void, with darkness covering the face of the deep. Another way to describe this is unordered. Pre-creation is an event that is in utter chaos. Like that's what's being described there, chaos. Like, like, a, like, like if, you are, if you've ever been like out on a cruise or something, has anyone ever been on a cruise? And, and you forget for just a minute that you're on a cruise because if you're on a cruise, you're not really in chaos, but just forget for like a split second and, and maybe you, you go out all the way to the back of the boat, which probably has a name that I can't remember, bow, whatever, I don't know, whatever. You go to the back of the boat and, and it's dark out and you just look out, and, and, and maybe the water's a little choppy, and, and you, just, you just see what maybe you can make out. Maybe there's a little bit of moonlight, but in this situation, there wouldn't be, as we're looking at the text, and so maybe there is no moon, and you just see nothing but emptiness and just darkness. And you know that if you were to slip and fall in any way, shape, or form, that would be it. Like, there's no coming back from that. So that's like a... Like a Maybe like this much of what is going on here in Genesis chapter 1. Utter chaos. And this is where the story begins. But notice what it says at the end of verse 2. We are going to get to John, but hold on. It says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And, and this language of hovering, it's, it's only used in this way in one other time in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, a song which praises God for delivering Israel from slavery. And I think I have a slide for this, Deuteronomy 32. It says this. It says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste. It's actually the same word that's used to describe that utter chaos, the, the formless and void. In, in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. And so while Genesis 1 is describing creation, it's also revealing to us the nature of the Creator as one who hovers over the chaos in the same way a mother eagle hovers over its young. But the eagle doesn't just hover, right? She spreads out her wings. She catches her young. She bears them up. She doesn't allow whatever chaos her young are experiencing to continue. Now look at what it says in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the sword of light that breaks over the chaos is an otherworldly sort of light as the sun, moon, and stars are still days away from being created. And so the point is that God doesn't just hover over the chaos. He brings tangible and lasting hope in the midst of it. He brings tangible and lasting hope in the midst of it. But the story continues. See, the days of creation, they roll by as God, by his word and through his spirit, brings further order to the chaos. Until the final day when he looks upon everything that he had made and he says, behold, it was very good. The text then tells us that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then says toward the end of chapter 2 that God formed from the man a woman and the two of them were tasked to live in the presence of God in the light of his glory, extending the hope of Eden 
throughout all of creation. Everything was as it should be until God's image bearers were deceived. And as a result of this deception, the darkness of sin entered God's creation. And from there, from what we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, our own understanding of human history and the lived experiences of walking through this earth for however long we've been alive, that darkness has spread and permeated every corner of creation. I think we'd all agree with that. Now, I'm not sure why I decided to treat this passage in this way, but when I, read, when I read those words of Jesus, I am the light of the world, my mind just started going. It just went all the way back to the beginning, and it actually went all the way to the end, but we're not there yet. See, John loves this theme of light. It's where he started back in chapter 1 when he said that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so the point is that Jesus, who is God, so much so that when we look at and experience, and experience the Son, we are also looking at and experiencing the Trinity itself. Jesus, upon observing the chaos that began in Genesis chapter 3, did the very thing he did at the beginning when he was hovering over the chaos. He got to work. He got to work. Which brings us to John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. We are in verse 12. Now, to situate ourselves a little bit, it's more likely that this section follows the events of chapter 7 and not the story of the woman caught in adultery, which means that Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. By way of reminder, the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths was the last of the fall festivals. And it was a time where the people thanked God for his provision, they prayed for his continued faithfulness, and they remembered the years their ancestors spent in the wilderness, living in these temporary homes, these tents or booths. And embedded into the celebration was this looking forward to the day when the Messiah would free them from bondage and establish the kingdom of God. In other words, it was a festival dripping with eschatological hope. Eschatological meaning the day when God would make all things right. Remember the words we read a few weeks ago from Zechariah, and I have a slide for this, I believe, in, verses, in chapter 14, verses 7 through 8. And there shall be a unique day, one unlike any other, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, what we know about the events of the Feast of Tabernacles is that it was a spectacle. Think 4th of July. Later, Jewish writers describe the event like this. Men of piety and good works would dance through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that the Levitical orchestras would cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on for every night of the feast with the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. I'm thinking like Brooklyn on the 4th of July, right? If you know, then you know. This is the scene into which Jesus speaks the words, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Now, before we get into the debate that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees that basically takes up the rest of our passage, we need to spend some time talking about this. Right? As I mentioned, the festival is dripping with eschatological hope. So Messiah is on the minds of everybody in attendance. Zechariah's prophecy about there being light at evening time draws our gaze towards something we have yet to experience. While the celebration and remembrance of Israel's wilderness wanderings would have reminded festival goers of God's redemption and how he rescued their people from slavery in Egypt. Salvation is the theme of the day, but there's more. When Jesus utters those words, I am the light of the world, he's also doing something else. He's claiming the title of Yahweh. He's using those words. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Ego a me, I am. The same words spoken to Moses, Moses when he first met God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. God, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am who I am sent you. And not only does he claim himself to be the covenant-keeping God, the one who brought Israel out of slavery, but he's also claiming the title of true Israel and Messiah as the phrase light of the world is lifted partially from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, a passage that describes the work of God's servant, a servant that Isaiah describes as both Israel and distinct from Israel. It says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Like, like, that's not enough. Like, you can't just be a savior, a servant, who's going to bring back Israel. There's got to be more to your story. I will make you as a light for the nations, for the world, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then finally, in claiming these sorts of things, Jesus is also identifying himself as the creator, the light of the world, the one who spoke light into the chaos of Genesis chapter 1. So just in those couple of words, I am the light of the world, there's all this stuff just shoved into it. What's the point? Simply stated, in the presence of some of the most biblically And theologically trained people in Israel, Jesus is saying, I am everything you've been longing for. Follow me and it will all make sense. I'm everything you've been longing for. And that's what he's saying to us. But but the confusing part, and it's the same thing that probably causes us some confusion, is that what didn't and still doesn't make sense is the fact that following Jesus... I don't know if you notice it. It doesn't actually lead to temporal, societal, or physical relief. At times it can, right? But that's not the point of the promise, nor is it the goal of the already nature of the light of the world shining into the darkness. But you know what it does do? It leads to a people... It leads to a people formed and shaped by the cross of Christ. And as a people, we start to affect change in the lives of people, in the lives of communities, in the lives of families. And so it's not that that stuff doesn't happen. It's not the primary goal of the already nature of the kingdom. 
What I mean is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then when he saves us by his cross, he unleashes us into the world in the same way he came into the world, bearing a cross. We're going to get there. A lot going on this morning. Got a lot of stuff. I'm excited about it. I don't know if you can tell. And so the debate begins, verses 13 through 18. Check it out. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. It's like, no, it is. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, we're going to talk about that, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. What's going on here, right? Basically, the Pharisees are calling Jesus a liar. Right? That's, that's what it is. I don't know if you caught that. He says, I am the light of the world, and the Pharisees are like, no, you're not. You're a liar. Now, to be fair, their argument is grounded in the words of the Bible. Deuteronomy 17.6 argues that two to three witnesses are required when passing a judgment upon someone. But this is important. Just because something is grounded in the words of the Bible doesn't necessarily mean it's grounded in the teaching of the Bible. You see the distinction there? Just because they're using the words doesn't mean they're actually understanding the teaching, right? Southern slave owners use the words of Scripture to justify their position. But they clearly weren't operating on the teaching of the overall scope of redemptive history found in our Bibles. Now, Jesus argues that his testimony is true because he knows where he came from and where he's coming, but they don't. Now, what strikes me here is that it appears as though Jesus is claiming, while these guys know a lot of Bible verses, they don't really have a category as to the sort of Messiah that Scripture promised. In fact, in verse 17, when Jesus says, in your law it is written, in your law it is written, he seems to be making a subtle point similar to what we just looked at, that while they might be deriving their understanding of who God is, from the words they read in their Bibles, they haven't a clue. They haven't a clue. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5 when he was speaking with the religious leaders. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. But they don't believe Jesus. In fact, they question every single thing he says and does. Why? Because they are in the dark. They are in the dark and they don't know who their God is. They don't know who their God is. Now, for good measure, Jesus humors them. Your law says I need to witness. Cool. I bear witness about myself. That's one. And the Father who sent me, sent me bears witness about me. That's two. There's your two witnesses. That doesn't really go over. Check it out. Verse 19 through 20. They said to him, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now the Pharisees are mocking Jesus here. 
they might even know about Joseph the carpenter. We know some of the religious leaders do from chapter 6, verse 42. Most likely, Joseph is dead at this point, and if he isn't, he probably wouldn't hold all that much influence. But you see, Jesus isn't playing around. Look at what he says. You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. The point that Jesus is making is that these guys who claim to speak for God, who claim to uphold every detail of God's law, they don't even know him. They don't even know him. They wouldn't recognize God if he smacked them right across the face. I said this last Sunday, I'm going to say it again. Just because somebody knows their Bible, it doesn't mean they are spiritually mature. And to add to that, just because somebody quotes a Bible verse, it doesn't mean they're right. All right? Now, this is feeling like kind of negative for a minute, but there's some positive stuff going on in Jesus' statement. Because when he says the words, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He's making a profound theological statement that should bring us an enormous amount of comfort. For those of us who know Christ, for those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, what that means is that we also know the father. And we have fellowship with the father. How does that work? To get a smidgen technical for a second. What Jesus is describing is what theologians refer to as perichoresis, perichoresis, I'm saying it right, which speaks to the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, the Spirit indwells the Father. Now Jesus says in John 14 that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And Paul, when speaking about who Christ is, argues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so what that means, right, to take, to take this theological concept and, and bring it down to, to what one of my old Bible school professors called putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, what that means for us is that we are loved by and we serve a God who is undivided, who loves and pursues us with a Trinitarian love and pursuit. It means that the same grace we learned about last week, the grace of God, the grace of Christ that pursued the woman who was caught in adultery, is a grace that is shared and extended to us through all three persons of the Trinity. Because all three persons of the Trinity are unified in their love and devotion for their adopted family. That is good news, Redeemer. Right? We don't serve a God who, in the Old Testament, he was like old, crotchety, and mean. But in the New Testament, like his son, who's like, you know, cooler and hip and younger, right? He comes in, he's like, yeah, no, I know my dad said a couple of things. And like, he was pretty angry. Let me explain. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how it is. That's a divided God. That's actually a Trinitarian heresy. But we're not going to get into that right now. That's a divided God. And God is unified. Meaning that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God who entered into creation with love and compassion and mercy who bore our sins on the cross. Same God. Now that's confusing, right? Like, because the Trinity is confusing and, and it's meant to just cause us to, to kind of fall on our face and worship God. It's not meant for us to try to fully understand it. We should try to understand it. And study it so that it moves us to worship. 
But our God is undivided. That's such good news. Passage continues. Verse 21 through 24. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So not only does Jesus claim to be the light of the world, the great I am, the one who spoke creation into existence and deliver, delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he now claims heavenly origins and to have authority over sin and the life hereafter. He's making some big claims here. Now, a couple of observations. When he speaks of his going away, Jesus is referring to his death. And when he says that you will seek me, what he means is that in denying him, they're going to continue looking for a Messiah. But the problem is, is they won't be able to find one because he left. Right? Like, it's just like basic logic, right? I mean, I never studied logic, but that seems like a pretty logical argument. Now, I think, and this is really important, pay attention here. I think it's easy to read this in a judgmental and condemning light. Right? Like, Jesus is really giving it to the Pharisees, right? But we know, we know that's not how Jesus is speaking. And we know that because he said that he judges no one. And that he did not come to condemn the world. These are things we know about Jesus, that he has articulated about himself just in the Gospel of John. We're not even really zooming out now at other passages. Just in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm judging no one, and I did not come into the world to condemn. In fact, the word for judge and condemn, they're the same word in the Greek. It's the same, it's the same word. So, so the point is, is that Jesus isn't reveling in the fact that they will die in their sin. Like, we got to grab that, right? That's, that's important. Jesus isn't reveling in the fact that these people, if they choose to not follow him, are going to die in their sin. God doesn't take joy in those who, who, who don't come to him. Now, I know that's been taught in, in, in a variety of, of different places. Like, that, that, that's not who Jesus is. And if it's not who Jesus is, and, and, and the Son indwells the Father, and the Father indwells the Son, and the Spirit, and, and so on and so forth, then it can't be who the Father is. You, you tracking? It doesn't mean that God doesn't have wrath. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that sin will not be judged. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God does not revel in the fact that people sin and run from him. And that they will one day, should they not turn from him, be cast out. That's not, he does, it's not like, he's not like sweet. Right? It's not who he is. It's not in his character. It's not in his nature. He says it. He says, I'm not here to condemn. I don't judge. He will at the end of the age, but he's still a God of compassion and love and mercy. See, Jesus speaks honestly about the world. 
The world is a place of darkness, a place where sin and evil reign, where the devil roams around like a roaring lion. But Jesus also speaks about how he loves the world, how he loved it so much that he was willing to die for it. It's so important. we got to catch that. we got to catch the love and mercy and compassion of God, not to the, the neglect of his holiness. No, no, no. His holiness matters. And those of us who are his followers, like, it matters that we are holy. In fact, the Bible says, be holy as he is holy. Like, we are to pursue holiness. We are to pursue righteousness. We are to fight sin tooth and nail and resist temptation. But God loves sinners. And if that's disappointing... You, you need to evaluate where you're at. You need to evaluate where you're at and your understanding of who God is. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Now, I have to spend a few minutes on verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, I don't know if you notice, in verse 21, you will die in your sin. There's no S. And in verse 24, there's, there's plural form of sins, right? And, and so what's going on there, just really quickly, is that, that there's this overarching category of sin, like we are in sin. It's like who we are, apart from Christ, we are in sin. And then there are the sins that flow out from who we are, right? It's, it's very similar to, to those of us who are in Christ bear fruit. Those of us who are in sin bear sins, right? That's kind of the idea going on there. But, but this is important. He says this, I told you that you would die in your sins. Now, the reason is because they and us, our origins, are from the place of death, darkness, and sin. We are of this world, right? We are of this world. Jesus is from above, and what he's bringing from above is the light of life. Now, the question that we need to wrestle with is the question he's asking the Pharisees. Do you believe that I am he? But a better translation is, do you believe that I am? Do you believe that I am? He's not there. Do you believe that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise? Do you believe that Jesus is the coming of God into the world? That's the question he's posing. He's posing it to the Pharisees, and John, in recounting the story, he's posing it to us. Do we believe? Have we entrusted ourselves to Christ, who is God? In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do we trust him? Do we believe him? And then you know what happens? This is, this is beautiful. See, what happens when we entrust ourselves to Jesus is that we are actually moved. Like, there's a position change in, in who we are. Scripture talks about like this. In Colossians, it says, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Like there's, there's a move that takes place, right? If you've ever moved, you know that like, like you lived in one place and then all of a sudden you lived in another place. That's what he's saying. You used to live in the domain of darkness. But now I've transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, we are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Simply put, for those of us who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus, 
We are no longer in our sin, but we are in Christ. In Christ. And if we are in Christ, then not only is our sin dealt with and our relationship with God restored, like if that weren't enough, but we become, and this is cool, right? This is, this is really cool. We become the means through which God is making his appeal to the surrounding world. And check this out. Jesus believed that so much, right? He believed that so much that he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he refers to his disciples, guess what? As the light of the world. You guys tracking with this? You see what's happening here? In John's gospel, Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. And in Matthew's gospel, he calls us the light of the world. How can that be? Because to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ, is to possess all that is his. You you catch that? To be in Christ, to be in union with Christ, is to possess all that is his, which means that the light that is Christ now breaks forth through the lives we live, the lives of humility, of love, of compassion that we demonstrate to the world around us, not lives of judgment and condemnation. That's not why Jesus came. And so that's not why he's sending us. I said this last week. He sends us in the same way he came. And he did not come to condemn the world. And so he's not sending us to do it. He's not saying like, okay, right, like, listen up. Guys, I didn't come to condemn. Like, I forgot to do that. Right? It was on my list of to-dos, but like, it got busy. You know how Holy Week is, right? Like, like so what I need you to do, because I forgot... Can you get on with that condemning piece and that judging piece? Like, give it to him. That's not what he does. He he doesn't do that. Again, it doesn't mean that holiness doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that holiness doesn't matter. But holiness, being different, being set apart, has a whole lot to do with love. And, And the sort of love that we see unfold throughout the pages of the Gospels. That Jesus sort of love, right? That cross-shaped love. And so, so sometimes we get so hung up on this idea of holiness that, that we put a whole bunch of things into the category of holiness. Like, right, like don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, right? That's an old one. I don't know if some of you guys might have used that. Um, or like no dancing, right? Like, cause you know, if the hips start moving, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, or like, you know, like we can't touch a drop of alcohol. Cause if we touch a drop of alcohol, then that slippery slope, we might, we might blow up into smithereens, right? Like, like he's not like, should we be careful of things? Like, should we be wise in how we live our lives? Of course, right? Like that's not the point, but what's more important, what Jesus is more concerned with is pursuing people with love, compassion, grace, and mercy, the same stuff he pursued us with. Why? Because the kindness of God leads to repentance, not the beating down. We gotta be careful. We gotta be careful. It's so easy. 
It's so easy to pull out like our, our like holiness shotguns and just blow people out of the water. It's so easy. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Because that's not who he is. It's not who he is. But something happens, right? When we are transferred and delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, we change. Paul actually says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's something absolutely different about us following our conversion. Not following the prayer, the sinner's prayer we prayed. Following our conversion. Following that moment when the lights click on. It might have been the same time you prayed the sinner's prayer. If so, that's great. That's wonderful. Might have been the same time you wrote a date in your Bible that this is the day I got saved. Might have been that time. For me, it wasn't that. It was like, it was like a year and a half of like just things just all of a sudden like starting to make more sense as, as, as I learned and, and I sat under preaching and I was like, well, I, I, something's different here. Like I, I, no longer, I no longer love the things I used to love. I, I, things just start to change, right? But things change. We become new creations. And then we start to be marked by the fruits of the Spirit. And if you read through the fruits of the Spirit, it doesn't say yell at people, right? It doesn't say condemn people. It doesn't say kick people when they're down. It doesn't say pick apart people's lives and point out all the ways that they're sinners and how, like, they're not welcome here. Like, it doesn't say that. Love, joy, peace, self-control. I'm probably missing some. I know I'm not a memorizer. But you know them, they're there. You can look them up, Google, Fruits of Spirit, you'll get it. I know it doesn't say condemn and beat down. That I know. That I know for a fact. Don't say that. Pharisees don't know how to handle any of this. Their response is one of confusion. Look at verse 25 with me. So they said to him, who are you? And like, I imagine they're kind of like, Bro, who, what, what, who are you? I don't, I don't get what's happening here. See, you know what? I'm going to stop there for a second. This isn't in my notes, but let's just like remind me of something. I think that the world needs to look at us and we need to be so marked by cross-shaped love, mercy, and compassion that when they hear that we're an evangelical, that they're kind of like, wait, what? Really? Because you, you don't sound like the evangelicals that I, I watch on TV, that I see on the news. You look different. Like that same response, that, that who are you? My prayer for myself for my family, for the people of Redeemer Fellowship, that, that when a, when a, when a non-Christian, when, a, when, a, when someone who, is, who we would categorize as of the world looks at us and finds out who we are, they're just like, what? Oh, that's, I didn't expect that. Jesus blew up people's categories. And, and new categories have been built, sadly, by us. By us. Over the course of the last however many years of American evangelicalism, we have built up some strange categories 
And there's views about us that, that sadly are, are kind of true. You know, if we zoom out, it's kind of true. Let's not be that. Let's blow up every single person's category that when they hear you're an evangelical, that they're just like, whoa, I don't get that. That would be remarkable, right? That would be remarkable. That's what happens when God's grace starts to work in our lives. When we start to hold one another accountable for these things. When we challenge one another. When we allow people into our lives. When we allow sin, like, like some of the dirty sorts of sins, to actually be exposed. Because when that happens, we start to recognize that, oh, apart from Christ, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Not as good as I thought I was. Because we, we are, as a whole, we're impressed with ourselves. It's why so many of, of those who, who we call brothers and sisters, who we love, right, they, they go into the activist world and they want to activist everything. Everything, it's like, I don't know, Paul says, like, make it your ambition to lead peaceful, quiet, godly lives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to get in trouble if I keep going off script, so I'm going I'm to dial it back. Who are you? And Jesus' response, what does he say? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I have been telling you from the beginning. And while you still can't seem to figure out who I am, I know full well who you are. Did you catch that? I have much to say about you and much to judge, but I'm not here for that. That's not why I'm here. And then look at what he says in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And, and again, just take that he off. Then you will know that I am. Then you will know that ego a me. Then you will know I am Yahweh. This is the third I am of the passage. But this one might be one of the most powerful. This one feels a lot like Paul's words from Philippians chapter 2. Because what Jesus is saying, track here, is that him being lifted up, which is his crucifixion, him being lifted up, that is the thing that will demonstrate who he is. His crucifixion will demonstrate who he is. Then you will know that I am. Remember Philippians 2. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own gain. In other words, track this, Jesus being God is the reason he humbled himself. Because Jesus is God, that's why he humbled himself. Self-giving love and compassion is who God is. And so being lifted up being killed, being humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that the ones he loves might be freed from sin, that is simply the outflow of the very nature and character of who Jesus is. And if it's who Jesus is, then it is who the Father is, and it is who the Spirit is. The cross is the great revelatory event because the cross is the fullest expression of who God is and his self-giving love. 
The cross is the great revelatory event. It is the big reveal. It's the cross. That right there is a category confusion. If you want to know what love looks like, you look at the cross. That's why we say that we are forgiven by the cross and we are formed by the cross. It's not just a one-time event. It continues to do its work in us, stripping away all the pride, all the self-righteousness, so that we can enter into the most broken of situations without an ounce of arrogance and nothing but love and compassion and mercy and the words of the gospel on our lips. That is so important that we get that. And, and, and you know what? It's good news. It's good news. The fact that the cross is one of the fullest expressions of who God is means that he's always been this way. And if he's always been this way, then he's not going to change at some point in the future. Right? Like, it's not going to be like one day we fumble the ball and Jesus is like, oh, I did the mass 70 times 7, you know, like, you blew it. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. As we close, I might have went a little long today. I apologize. I think the way to bring this all to a conclusion is to show you all where the story's heading. We talked about God's ordering of the chaos in Genesis chapter 1 and how that ordering began when he flipped the lights on. We talked about how Jesus identified himself as that very same light, which means that those of us who are covered in darkness or who are just hiding some of that darkness away so that others won't find out about it, Jesus wants to expose it. He does. But he wants to expose it not so he can laugh and point and judge us and condemn us, but so he can heal us of it. And then when he heals us of it, we become the light of the world. And in the same way Jesus came with self-giving love, compassion, and humility, he's sending us to do the same. And then watch what happens. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. It's all the way at the end of the Bible now. All the way at the end of the Bible. We start in Genesis, we're ending in Revelation. Rock and roll, right? Why not? And look at verse 9. I'll give you a second to get there. I feel like the beginning and the end of the Bible is sometimes harder to get to because you start getting into the maps and like gets like sticky. Maybe not. Maybe you guys are, maybe you have those tabs. Check this out. I'm not saying, tabs are great. I'm not condemning tabs. I just don't have them. Just don't have them. I don't want everyone to go out and rip out their tabs now. Not. Check this out, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This, this is just so good. This is so good. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. A couple things, right? Notice what he's showing us. The bride the wife of the lamb. 
It's us. Notice the city we'll be inhabiting. The city that will cover all of creation. It possesses what? The glory of God. Now fast forward to to verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of light. life. Notice that there's no temple in the new creation in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because Christ and those of us who have entrusted ourselves to him, we are the temple. But verse 23 is is so cool because it says the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Jesus is the lamp that is shining forth throughout all of the new creation. This is where the entire project is heading. And it's the project that we are all a part of if we have entrusted ourselves to Jesus. And notice what the lamp is. The lamp isn't like the conquering, like, horse-bearing stallion, right? It doesn't say that. It says the lamp is the lamb. Man, humility just, it, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at new creation. It keeps going for all of eternity. We serve a God who is self-giving, self-emptying, who loves to the uttermost. The lamb is the lamp. That's good news. That's good news. It's a project marked by the blood of the Lamb, the crucified one who laid down his life so that we can have the light of life, a life that is eternal and abundant and with God. With God. That is good news. Redeemer fellowship. If you don't know this Lamb, if you are still hiding if you're still keeping things back, you don't have to. Because so help me, this is not a community of faith that's going to heap condemnation on you. In fact, if condemnation starts getting heaped, there's going to be conversations. Like, it's like, oh, no, 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 we don't do that here. No, 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 we're going to talk about that. No, no, you can be honest with your brothers and sisters in this community of faith. You can share with them the struggles that you are encountering. You can can ask for prayer. You You can confess sin to one another. Like, that actually has to start happening. Because if it doesn't start happening, then then we're not actually going to be able to embody the humility of the Lamb. If we keep pretending that the sin's not there, if we keep pretending that the darkness isn't there, and we only show, like, the parts that, that have some light to it, 
we're not going to move forward. And I know I said this all last week, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's that important. I think it's the thing that's going to, to mark us and move us forward as, as a community of faith here in Tom's River. That we start like recognizing like our own stuff and, and allowing the spirit of God and the light of life who is Jesus to cleanse us from it. Because until we start to acknowledge it, it we're just going to hold on to it. Right? Sin has a field day in darkness. It just does. And so let's start doing the work. Let's even use this morning, this table, as we come to, 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 to participate in the supper. Let's use this as an opportunity to, to maybe grab someone. I'm not saying, guys, I'm not saying you got to come up here and get a microphone and share all your stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying find a trusted brother or sister in this community. And if you don't have one, you got to find one. And say, hey, I need your help. I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. Okay? Imagine if we start doing that. Imagine what, what sort of space we would, we would give for the Spirit to work. Right? That's what quenching the Spirit is. It's, it's, when we, it's when we hold on to sin. That's when we quench the Spirit. It's not when we don't raise our hands in worship. Like, that's not quenching the Spirit. Some people raise their hands. Some people do a medium. Some people don't at all. Right? It's fine. Whatever. When we hold on to sin, that's what quenches the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so I got, I got nothing left to say, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. But that's my challenge to us as we move forward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. And right now, Father, I pray. Lord, that your spirit would fall upon this church in such a particular way, Lord God. Stir in our hearts. Lord, whoever it is, however many are struggling right now, however many who are far from you right now, today's the day, Lord God. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of confession. Today's the day of your grace, Lord. I beg you, Lord, to work in our church, Lord God. You've been doing such beautiful things in and among your people here in Tom's River, Lord God. Continue, Lord God. Turn up the volume. We're asking. Um, we, we, want, we want all of it, Lord God. We don't want just a portion. We want all of it. We want the entire thing, God. Help us. Keep us humble. Keep our eyes fixed upon your Son, the lamb who was slain and help us to embody that same love and compassion and mercy and grace, Lord God. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray.